was brutal. If you could summarize Buddhism in, in two words, it's everything changes. And people get very attached to whatever they have right now. Circumstances are going to change that for better or for worse. But the one thing you can be sure of is going to change. This is not my fault. This is not a failure. I'm not going to attach negative emotional energy to the fact that I got cut. So what am I going to do with my time? I'm going to do that course. I'm going to roll the dice and become a consultant, launch a new business. Adversity is an incredible teacher and adversity reveals character and it really shows you your opportunities for growth. If you don't have your own high purpose, then you get defined by your job title. You're defined by the size of your house because you're choosing to define yourself and you're allowing others to define you by things that actually don't really matter. We can all sit around and dream. I think most of us should do more of it actually. But then once you got to the point that you've identified an idea, so you've planted a bunch of seeds, you've seen how they mature, you've identified the one you want to go with, then it's a grind and you just have to go. We're talking about their Great Recession before and people getting fired. That's what it took for them to pursue their dream. Yeah, for other people, it's like a cancer diagnosis or it's the breakup of a marriage or some horrendously traumatic thing that gives them permission to think differently about the next phase of their life. You don't need that. You don't have to wait for something awful to happen. You can do it right now. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening? It really helps the podcast grow. So, so I think for, you know, it put it, put a, a more pithy uh, Western way would be success is the best revenge. If yes, uh, whatever's massively. happened, <laughs> use it, use it to propel you forward. And does that mean it's easy? Of course not. I mean, Kay's story mm-hmm. at Vixen and Fox, uh, which hopefully you'll hear directly one day because it is an incredible story. Uh, I cannot imagine that, that trauma. I've never faced that kind of personal adversity. And what she's been able to do with that and turn that into a fuel that, that the fire burning in her and the fuel that that's providing is incredible. I think as well, and it's, it's overrated. So many people think of like, it's just a human fact that like most of us are motivated to like more so from seeking joy is avoiding pain, but also using that pain as a, as a motivator. Yes. Like so many great ambitions, I believe, particularly I can only speak as, as a young male, but so many ambitions for the ambitious guys are built from some insecurity or lack of a rejection 100%. early in their life. It's like, I'll fucking show you. 100%. And then, but you know what I mean? It, that can be great. And then as you get older and you mature, you realize, okay, maybe that started me, but I want to have a more mature relationship with that as you move forward. But in terms of just that founding block, like uh, whatever it is to find that motivation, like absolutely. harness it. Yes. And you, you made a really great point there. Like as you evolve as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as a human being, mm-hmm. at a certain point in time, you reflect on that and it takes on a different role. Yeah. But but as a as an incredibly powerful jet fuel to whatever mm-hmm. it is that is firing you, uh, there, there's it, it's incomparable in terms of how powerful it is. Tra- trauma can be incredibly powerful. I mean, that's certainly true of me and it sounds like it might have been true of you. Something that happened at some point in time where you got a little fuck you. Like, yes, I, like 100%. that's not going to be me. Yeah. Who you think I am and what you're saying I am, that's not me. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it, it's a very powerful force. Harnessing it and channeling it for good, mm-hmm. you know, harnessing it and channeling it for whatever your higher purpose is, is, yeah. is trick one. Yeah. And then putting it in some sort of perspective over time, a more peaceful perspective over time is kind of job too. And I think that's the, that, that's a lifetime's journey. And that's where I am at today. Like in, in my life, so I've been in business for about five and a half years. So six and a half years, including the build. And now I just turned 30 literally last week. Now, Happy talk, birthday. Thank you very much. What was your birthday? Halloween. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I turned 50 on the 28th. Oh, so, so. yeah. <laughs> another Scorpio. Another Scorpio. Yeah. Um, and it's my brother's birthday today. Shout out, Ryan. Happy birthday. Um, 
What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So what I was surprised, I obviously did my research on the guest. I was reading some articles that um, that you'd been featured in and 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 was what surprised me, obviously, I'll, I'll do a little bit of an intro to you in a second, a man with a very impressive CV. What surprised me by you, because you've got a lot of like high-level business experience and business acumen, and there was a, I don't know what article it was, but it was like some of your top book recommendations. And I was expecting to see like all business and strategy books, but there was a lot of it actually – uh, like, like you spoke about Zen and, and monk and, 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 and that sort of spirituality. I was surprised how much that has obviously played a, a part in your mindset and, and how that's bled into, you know, the rest and that enabled you to be that sort of business person, the operator that can set a strategic plan and, 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 and put, take a business through tran- transformational change. So that was very interesting. I want to get into that. But speaking of that kind of transformation from that original motivator being this like young, hungry, ambitious guy wanting to do it because like, fuck you, you, you think I can't watch me do this. Yeah. Now I'm, the, my, my partner's more into like the spirituality stuff. She, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called the Saturn return. I don't know. It's, no. But apparently it's like when you're about 29 and a half Saturn, I don't know. It's all, I, I don't really understand it, but you go through a lot of changes apparently around this time, like big realizations and shifts in your life. Yeah. And I don't know too much about the Saturn return thing, but a lot of people seem to go into some sort of like crisis around when they turn 30. Yeah. And it's because like, I feel like I've been shedding, you know, I'm not motivated by the same things. I don't, yes. I don't have a, that chip on my shoulder that I need to prove to the world anymore. I don't, I don't feel like I don't need to wor- outwork my insecurities because I don't really have the insecurities that drove me at the beginning. Yes. But now it's like, what's going to be that next powerful motivator to, to take me through the next level of life and business, obviously a family in the next couple of years and start doing things for different reasons. Yeah. So, I think that uh, that notion that at certain ages mm. you go through certain changes, thank God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank God for that. The thought that I would, would still be the guy I was at 18 or, or 19, I don't think I'd still be alive. So, so I, I can certainly relate to that. Mm. And, and I, I, was, I was talking to a friend about it recently and um, as I was approaching 50, you know, a couple of weeks ago I turned 50 as I just mentioned, as I was approaching oh, that. Happy birthday. Thank two you. big ones. Yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. 50. Exactly. The zeros. Um, and it's never really, it, it hasn't happened in such a powerful way, but I, I became very reflective and very grateful. And, and those are really, I guess, the two sides of the coin and really reflecting on, on the whole journey, personal, professional, uh, friends, um, uh, my wife, romantic interests, et cetera, et cetera. And I think if you don't do that on some sort of regular basis, you know, you're really missing out. You know, there's, there's, there's so much that we can learn from our own personal experience, but you've got to create space for it. You've got to create time for it. So whether that's a mindfulness practice or whether it's surfing or whether whatever it is or spiritual practice, whatever it is for you, but we're so busy, we're so distracted, we're being pinged all day long and we're staying very much at really, you know, the, the neuroscientists would tell you that we're, we're only tapping a fraction of our potential when we're at that level. But when you're creating space for creativity and, and innovation is just the practical application of creativity. So you, you, if you want to be innovative in your business, if you want to take an innovative and progressive approach to your, the rest of your life, you know, your wellness or your health, your kids, your, 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 your romantic partner, if you're someone who is driven to always improve, then the practical application of that creativity is, is critical. But you need the creativity first and you need space. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of um, neurological research that boredom is critical. For, for creativity. And we've eliminated We're never that bored. Much, right? We're never bored. Never. Okay, I've got a two-minute walk. I'm going to put a podcast Yeah, in. I'm guilty of it at times So myself. am I. So am I. We all are. So it's, I think, finding that, getting a little reflective, 
you know, really looking back, what, what are you really happy with? Are the goals that you set out to accomplish still the right ones for you? Indeed, have you, have you accomplished them? You know, do you need new goals? Or indeed, if you haven't necessarily got to exactly where you thought you wanted to, are they still driving you in the way they were? And at different points in life, that, that should be a process that you go through. And if you're not discovering something new about what is most important to you, then that would be a shame. Because it means you haven't done a lot of growth. <laughs> yeah. Is this something now, um, and this will be the last one, then I'll give a bit of context to who you are for everyone listening because we've just rolled into this one, but I, I really like it. Now, for, for in terms of that reflection, is this something you're doing continually or is this something that people can, you know, once a quarter, once a month, you know, once every six months, look at their life, look at what they've been operating and, and reevaluate, hey, am I still in alignment with my goals? Am I operating at my max output? Am I proud of what am I doing? And I still as passionate about this goal or does there need to be a pivot? How do you kind of navigate that? I think it's a great question because whether it's in your business life or your personal life, you don't want to be rethinking everything every day. It's exhausting, <laughs> right? It's just yeah. absolutely exhausting. So you need a balance. And, and if we were talking about it from a business perspective, and sometimes it is easy to talk about this from a business perspective because a lot of people, particularly men actually, get a bit squirrely when we start talking about emotion and we start talking about spirituality and we start talking about mental health. It's ridiculous and, and thankfully that's changing, but I don't think it's changing fast enough. So let's just park that for a second. When we focus it from a business perspective or even a sporting perspective, which everyone can wrap their head around, we've got a strategic objective. So that is, where, you know, where do I want to be in three, pick a time frame, three years, five years, 10 years. And typically I encourage people to not put a time limit on any of them initially. So it's just dreams initially. We're just talking about what do I want to accomplish with my life? And we've got a whole list of those. And then we start going through a process of dividing them up into 12-month, three-year, five-year, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, those should be reviewed quarterly at the most and annually really thoroughly because they are genuinely strategic or they should be. And if they're not genuinely strategic, then you've limited yourself. You know, if we think of strategy where we're not, we're not thinking about how, we're not thinking about what, we're not thinking about who, it's just why. So why is this important to me? What do I want and why? That's true strategic thinking. When we're talking about tactics, it's where we are today. How, who's going to help with that? How are we going to go about it? You know, uh, what measures should we use, et cetera, et cetera. So tactics, I think, should be reviewed much more regularly. And in the world that you live in, in e-com, I mean, you're thinking tactically every single day. And in my world, it's more about some period of reflection every day. So I'm journaling when I first wake up. I'm reflecting at the end of the day. The clients that I work with expect me to be very, very tuned in to what's going on with them on a day-to-day basis. And in the same way, I need to do that with myself. So it's a, it's a combination. So you're, you're thinking long-term um, it, it's, you know, when you're going to do it, but it's irregular. So it's, yeah. it's scheduled, but it's, it's not every day. Yeah. And then tactically in terms of, you know, reassessing the day to day and making course corrections as required. I think that should be daily or at worst weekly. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now people might be wondering who's all this, who's this man speaking with, you it's know, this guy this, that won't shut up. Yeah. Won't shut up with all this <laughs> awesome information. So let me intro you for, for those that are listening now, if I was to rattle off everything you've done, I'd be here all day, but I'm going to, I kind of summarized, uh, your very impressive CV. Now there's, there's a lot more to it. Obviously I could just scroll for your LinkedIn and we'd be here for half an hour talking about all the things you've done, but for a little bit of context to, to Joshua Sparks, our guest today. So spent close to five years of the CEO of SAS and Bide, mind you it, you know, I've spoken to a few girls kind of seemed when they were really at the peak of their powers or when they were really, really 
doing some amazing things. My, my, um, my partner's a, a few years older than me and she said when I was in high school, <laughs> uh, like, and, and, and I just went into high school, they were like, every girl had those jeans. So, um, yeah, CEO Great of Sass and Buy for a bit over five years, then moved over to New York um, to work as a consultant to designer fashion brands. You've, you've worked in fashion a, a lot of your professional career. So I'm really interested to, to spend some time um, getting to know that. So before, before, when you were consulting, then moved into uh, the CEO of uh, Tom Brown and the managing director of Urban Outfitters. Again, some massive brands um, in both Australia and, 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 and the US and around the world. You then returned to Australia to found wellness brand Thrive before an exit to Sumo Group um, about six years later. Um, and now obviously more recently before you've gone full-time with, with Together Studio, which I'll let you explain much better than me, Head of Innovation and Growth, MJ Bale, which everyone in Australia will know exactly who they every are. Guy. So yeah. Every guy <laughs> in Australia will know exactly who yeah. MJ Bale are. So, yeah, as I said, impressive CV. You've done a lot. I'm Thank interested you. to kind of hear about that journey. I'd, I'd probably say it's safe to say in terms of, you know, large companies and, and, and C-suite experience, you, you're probably the person with um, the most that we've had on the podcast, like – Generally, we get on founders that have had one business, e-com, five years, 10 years, but I really want to get to know, like, you've got de- two decades of experience in, in, in high-level So business. I'm the oldest guy you've had on the show. That's what you're saying. No, no, no. Max <laughs> Markson, who's definitely would be older than you. He's, like, he's the king of PR in Australia. But um, yeah, so that's a little bit of a high level of, of all your awesome experience for those listening. Now, explain to me before we kind of unpack how you became Josh Sparks and kind of the biggest lessons you got along the way from all this awesome experience. Explain what you're doing today with, with Together Studio. Obviously, you're recommend, recommended from another awesome guest recently, Taryn, yes. um, who has an extremely, incredibly successful um, business experience and awesome CV herself. But, yeah, explain to, to kind of the listeners what you're doing these days. Fantastic. Thank, that's a great introduction, by the way. I'm totally <laughs> happy with that. I'm thrilled. Thank you. Um, I, I think that the easiest way to explain it is that I work with entrepreneurs and CEOs and those who do aspire to that, those who aspire to that, their leadership teams. My focus is on making them the most effective leaders they can be. So we work on defining strategic vision, so really understanding what it is that is driving the entrepreneur and what they're wanting to drive towards. There's a whole mindset piece in that. There's a commercial piece in that. There's an operational piece in that. We develop the strategy that's required to support that vision. I then work with them in terms of aligning their team. And their team their team is in the broadest sense. So the team could be investors or potential investors. It could be a board. It could be their leadership team within the business if they have one at that point. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I was discussing um, you know, before we started, sometimes it's, it's working with their family. Um, you know, husband or wife who isn't quite there and not 100% supportive or a bit nervous about what's going on. So when I talk about the team, I'm talking about everyone you need around you to – Become the success you want to be, but then to sustain it over time because there's going to be ups and downs. And that team, you know, it's easy to celebrate when things are going well, but you really need that team around you when you're encountering the inevitable problems. And then the final piece of that whole process, so, you know, we we define strategy, we align team, and then we're really refining tactics. So we want super agile approach tactically. And by that, I mean we want to work out what are we pursuing tactically to achieve this vision? How are we measuring success? What is the appropriate cadence for course correction, which we just touched on? And having a very dynamic approach tactically. So, And strategy is not fixed like we just touched on before, but it's longer term. But alignment of the team is a constant and ongoing process. It's not a one-hit you know, it's not a one-hit process, although there is a piece of heavy lifting initially and it's then ongoing, And but tactics are every single day. So one is less frequent, one is pretty regular and one is daily and that process is, is you know, really what I do every day with the, the leaders I work with. 
And it's really interesting um, coming from, from from someone like yourself as well. We were speaking. I'm not sure if we caught this on on on, on air or not. I was speaking about and something you just mentioned again. One of the key things that so many people they want to get into business, especially the younger crowd. They just want to know how do I make money? What's your best your business tricks, ecom hacks, whatever? But mindset. Even for the elite C-suite of the corporate world, mindset is a crucial piece of the puzzle. It starts as a foundation, but then it doesn't stop there, right? No. Explain the relationship of mindset to any successful or, or, or hopeful entrepreneur. I think uh, sort of the, the, the pithy one-liner is that no business outgrows its leader. Now, what do I mean by that? The, the, the mindset that got you to the point that you were ready to launch your own business, there is, there, and we were unpacking this a little bit, bit before, there's, there's a mixture of elements that go into that, some of them very powerful that should, should be sustained, some of them even potentially a little bit negative but fuel to the, to the fire, that sort of angry young man, angry young woman that has a point to prove that can get you to the line. We have to honour that. That, that's that's incredibly important. Without that level of drive, you you never would have taken that step. But once you've taken the step to launch, it can shift, and indeed, it really should shift. So rather than being the angry young man, angry young woman forever and really creating crises that you can then come in and save the day. And I mean, we, we know leaders like that. There's some very well-known leaders like that. And I see it uh, quite regularly as well. That is one way to run a business, but it, it typically leads to burnout in the leader. If it doesn't lead to burnout in the leader, it certainly leads to a high level of attrition in the team. Like constant crisis, self-created crisis is, is no way to sustain a high-performance culture, build or sustain a high-performance culture. It's also not a way that you're ultimately going to feel fulfilled. So I think that transition from harness everything that you can to get you to the starting line, use whatever fuel you have in the tank to, to get you there, but then once you've launched, become a little bit more reflective because your role is changing. You're, you're no longer the the initiator. You know, you're no longer the catalyst for something new. You're then assuming leadership of a, an idea that you've turned into a concept that you've MVP'd that is now a business. You know, you're somewhere on that, on that, that journey. You're responsible for a team, you know, maybe not on day one, but eventually you, you certainly will be. And that team is, so you run the team, the team runs the business. Now that's fundamentally a different mindset to I do everything. Mm. And, and it's, it's typically a non-linear growth process. So it's not step-by-step step you get there. It's that you have to accelerate your learnings, your own personal self-development dramatically to be able to transition from I'm the guy or the girl that does everything and, you know, I'm going out of my mind, running around, putting out fires and trying to create energy and try, try to sell the dream to investors and potential staff and all the rest of it to I have to mature more into a leader coach. I have to be super clear on the on the vision. I've got to be very calm and very collected. I've got to absorb all the stress. I don't throw it down on my people because what I want ultimately is to manage, lead, coach a fantastic team and I want the team to run the business. So that transition can take three months and it can take three years. It can take a lot longer. It can never happen. But if as a leader you can recognize that the growth mindset that got you to launch is the important thing, not the individual specific motivators, but the mindset of always wanting more, pushing for more, not being satisfied with the status quo. That mindset's critical. You never lose that, but you're transitioning from, you know, dare I say it, a less mature version of the fully actualized you 
you're moving up those, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Hopefully you're getting progressively towards actualization, and that's what makes a truly exceptional leader. Now, does that mean you can't have a successful business if all you're focused on is money? Of course not. Like if all you're focused on is money, that's fine. That's great. Like this, you know, free country, beautiful democracy we live in. That, that is your choice. But the, the businesses that I work with that not just achieve success but sustain it over time have created a culture that outlives them. They created a genuine legacy. So it's got to be bigger than you. Like not just the vision, the whole thing has to be bigger than you. And that, that's a different mindset to I'm the guy that's going to change the world, right? It goes from ego to a, you know, very, very, you know, I'm going to be the one who does this. I've got the idea and fuck everyone, you know, that's, that's where I'm at. Uh, and maybe not to that extreme, but you understand what I, I mean. I know what you mean. You're trying to prove a point. And that's a wonderful thing. Like in, in the evolution of you as a human being, we have to go through that. It's like when they talk about teen, I've got a teenage boy and I've got a teenage girl as well. And that going through that, that evolution where they push back on you and it's the hardest thing, but it's a critical part of their self-development. And you, you too, as an individual have to move through from that pushing back on the world. I can do it better myself. You know, this, this, just leave it to me. I'll show you. You need to evolve beyond that. So mindset is, is not, it's not, a, it's not a fixed thing. The only thing fixed about it is within the broadly defined growth mindset, you are finding a way to tap into your higher self and continuing to grow and develop as a leader. And that will inspire your team. It will engage your customers. It will bring in partners that want to work with you prefer, preferentially on better terms than they offer because they want to be part of that. We all want to be part of that something bigger and, and, and better, that bright shining light on the hill. You mentioned something really interesting about you know, it's really easy when it might be a, a, a new business or a first-time founder, they get in and they're creating all these crises themselves, but they're not actually aware that they're doing it or, or, or why. Do you feel like with the type of person that, you know, attracts someone to start a business or try and build something for themselves, subconsciously <clears throat> you've worked with a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs over the, over the years. Do you think there's an element that certain people in business – subconsciously they don't even quite realize, but they're addicted to the chaos of it all. hundred percent. And they, and they can't, how, okay. Yes. Then how do you coach people? How do you, okay. First step is to changing anything is always, you know, awareness of the problem. Yes. First step awareness. But then how do you get people to move past that point? Yeah. Of that, just running around like a, a headless chicken all the time. I've got to do this and then I've got to do that. How do you level up past that point? It's a re- so I've recently worked with a founder CEO that fits that, description perfectly and I can think of several over the last <laughs> well even five years let alone 30 years so the Dr. Peter Fuda who, who is just a, a guru of all things leadership in Australia and you know one of the top leadership coaches in the world he talks about the you know awareness acceptance action cycle and awareness is great like where you know typically anyone who's vaguely self-aware or even has friends who are honest with them is going to be aware of their deficiencies fairly early on accepting it is a completely different kettle of fish. Once we get to acceptance, action's normally very quick because the subconscious kicks into gear. So once you've accepted something as, as deficient, suboptimal, needs to be changed, whatever, or great, and we need to double down on it, we need to be, we need to be more of these people in, we need to have more partnerships like this, we need to double down on this marketing stream or whatever it is. Once you've accepted it, action is very quick. Because the 90% of your brain that is sitting there waiting for orders is now kicked into action and you get very creative and you get very resourceful. But that, that gap between awareness and action, that can be a lifetime, you know. And, you know, have you your, – your girlfriend, you, you're not married yet? Okay. Oh, yeah, no. So, so um, uh, I've remarried. So I've, I've been married once, divorced and remarried, very, very happy, happily married. 
once I, I was aware that Steph was the right girl for me pretty well on the second date. Now, accepting that that meant a proposal took, uh, didn't take that long actually, but it took probably 18 months. I proposed the day after I accepted that. So it, from acceptance to action doesn't take a long time romantically. It doesn't take a long time in friendships. It doesn't take a long time in business. But I think that from awareness to action takes a long time. So how do, we, how do I encourage someone to move from awareness to acceptance? I think you, it, it's, a, it's a process. And it, like you were talking before about everyone wants a silver bullet. Sadly, there's not a silver bullet. You have to spend sufficient time and ask the right questions and shut up, which I'm not doing now, but, but I, trust me, I, I promise I do do it with clients. <laughs> Open up some space. You know, silence is very revealing. So we're asking questions. How do you think that went? How do you think the re- response to what, what you just suggested to them? How do you think she, she reacted to that proposal? How do you think this partnership is progressing? You know, were those the numbers that you expected? Why, why, why do you think we're getting the numbers that we are? And just opening up space. I haven't met a CEO, founder, or someone who aspires to be who doesn't know the answers to those questions. You know, I, it's not a rhetorical question. I'm not in, I'm not in a court of law where I'm going to provide the answer. It is, it is a, it is a genuine teasing out to move from awareness to acceptance. So it's a, it's a, it's a process. Question. With that process in terms of particularly the business sense and looking at the deficiencies and once you've accepted it, as you said, you activate your, your subconscious, which can then action it. But do you feel like for a lot of people, particularly with the deficiencies in business, the difference between awareness and acceptance is ego and self and, 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 and protecting themselves from accepting that they might not be as good as they wish they were or hope to be in X, Y, Z? I think you totally nailed it. So, so I think there's, there's an awful lot of us, and this includes me at various times in my career, where I, I would rather imagine that whatever my great idea is, is going to be an enormous success than accept what's required to put it to the test. And that, that fear of failure, and we were talking about this actually before we started, culturally we've got a lot to, to sort out here in Australia. And I was <laughs> I talking, talking about, you know, my time in the US um, was really interesting. I mean, there's the, I met a whole bunch of people who had failed three or four times before they succeeded and they were so proud of those war stories. There was no shame. There's no – it was like, thank God, and this is what I learned. And often the same investors funded them time after time because each time they're like, okay, this is what I got wrong. And next time we're not going to do it that way. And this <laughs> way, they're like, great, because I believe in you. Let's roll yeah. the dice. So culturally I think in Australia, whether we, whether we want to accept it or not, we've inherited a lot of really conservative, you know, th- thanks to I guess to the, more the British culture, we've, we've, we've taken on a lot of shame associated with so-called failure so I think for a lot of us, it's easier not to put it to the test. So I'm aware that there's an opportunity to improve myself, my leadership style, the business, a marketing partner, um, a staff member that needs some, whatever. I am pretty sure that I've got the perfect answer for it, but you know, I'm really busy and there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. I'm buried in the weeds and you all know, get to the late because really I'm fearful that if I put my assumption that I can fix it to the test, I might be wrong. Whereas the, the test and learn cycle that, you know, tech businesses like yours have embraced, I think it, it's such a great mindset to take more broadly. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not just testing and learning around, you know, MVP to beta to first launch or we're testing and learning with digital marketing or social marketing. We're, we should test and learn everything. We should test and learn our assumptions around organizational design. Mm-hmm. We should test and learn our assumptions around leadership styles and communication styles. And so I, I think getting over the fear of failure 
is, to your point, the key to going from awareness to acceptance. Yeah, because just so many people think that they – and I don't I don't even think it's conscious and some people might be half conscious, half unconscious, but people might think if I don't go all in and do everything that I can to make this happen, I've got this mental out where it's all right. Mm. But like you said, like – the, the entrepreneurs that have failed multiple times, that leads to their success and they're proud of it. So getting over that fear of failure, it's like everyone thinks you're going to be so judged and criticized by society. And it's a, it's a human thing going back, you know, thousands of years. If you were ostracized from, from, from the, the tribe, tribe, you literally would die. Yeah. Nowadays, it's not like that. No. It's, but those old school, you know, ingrained habits and, and beliefs, the way our brain works, is holding you back from something so much greater. 100%. And, and that failure is a critical component to growth. So, you know, if we take, again, going to, I guess, the way, uh, what I love about the tech clients that I work with and that, that tech mindset is it's approached from you know, the scientific method. We have a hypothesis. We don't know if it's true or not. We're going to do a series of experiments. Now, if the experiment, the first experiment you come up with proves the hypothesis good for you, but that almost never happens. <laughs> but then I go, oh, well, it didn't work. Oh, okay. Well, let's go do something else. It's like, great. We need another experiment to test the hypothesis because the hypothesis remains unanswered and I'm not going to stop experimenting until I have a definitive answer to the hypothesis. So that, that approach to life more broadly is so empowering. It's like, you know, I don't know exactly how we're going to move this business from A to B. I have a hypothesis. So let's do some time limited, cost limited, resource limited tests to test that hypothesis. So we're sensible about it. We're not going to go bet the farm, but we are taking an approach where we're doing a number of experiments systematically. We're measuring the results. We're communicating the results. We're learning. We're going again. And if you take that approach more broadly, whether it's sales or marketing or uh, recruitment or um, you know, uh, personnel development, whatever it is, partnerships, everything's a test. And if you take the view that everything's a test – there's nothing to lose. It's just a test. Exactly. And, and like you said, it's so applicable to e-commerce in terms of testing products and testing angles. Like so many people now will just want to, I, I want to find the product and I just want to launch and I want it to happen as quickly as possible. And that's great. And you, and like you definitely can launch an e-commerce business within 90 days if you're onto it. But some of the best, most successful brands as well. And this is kind of, I feel like what people do when they're going into the second or third business. Once you've had a little bit of experience, you realize, okay, would I rather take an extra two and three months to launch something but have such a higher percentage of assurance that it's going to be yes. – because you're testing the hypothesis, right? Yes. So you can make decisions with more data rather than gut, in, gut instinct. And yes. I feel like gut instinct and feel and intuition is really good, particularly early on in business when you might not have the finances or experience to, 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 to do these um, tests. Yeah. But then once you understand that the power of these tests in, in, in obviously my world's e-com, but – even in terms of your own daily practices. Yes. What gets you to the best results in your life? How do you feel your best? How do you look your best? It's all about trying different things and, and using your failures as data to propel you forward. That's all it is. It's just data. That, so every single experiment yields a positive result. It's not a failure because you've got data. Mm, I love that. Now, you said something that I was already going to ask you about, but I really, I really want to really dig into this. Now, you went, obviously, from Australia to, to, to the States. Yeah. Uh, in particular, New York, where everyone yeah. says, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. What's the, what's the saying? And I've been to New York. Um, and the first time I was there, I was doing some stuff with Gary V. And I'd always, you know, in Australia, you watch you watch New York in all the movies and all the TV shows. And you're like, wow, that's, that place seems pretty cool. But when you go there, I felt it. I understand why it's got that the reputation of what it is. It's like you feel genuinely like you're in the center of the world. Yes. And it made me reflect and think about, obviously, what, what happened with, with 9-11 why that was such a big deal because when you're in New York City you realize how grand and important that 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 city is very different from Australia yeah 
how would you explain your time in, in the US and New York in particular? And talk to me about some of the cultural differences between the two places. Well, first of all, I completely agree. I mean, when you're in New York and, and there's other cities like this, but it seems particularly true of New York, you feel like anything is possible. Yeah, massively. Genuinely anything is possible. There's no shortage of money. There's no shortage of people. There's no shortage of creativity. There's no shortage of ideas. And almost every time I went out, someone was pitching me an idea <laughs> or I was pitching someone else an idea. I like the, the creativity is, is incredible. The other thing I loved about America – um, particularly New York, was that if you if you had the confidence to knock on a door, then and and that door was almost always opened. If you had the confidence to then then pitch, someone would give you a go. So the the brands that I mean, I I went to New York without a job. I went because my ex wife uh, Julia Baird was offered the role as deputy editor of, of, of Newsweek. So I quit my job at Sassenbad, which I loved, and was as you said on an absolute high. We'd gone from sort of you know we had. 30x growth over four and a half years and it was a lot of fun you know when you were young and no kids and the parties and New York Fashion Weekend it was it was a lot of fun so I quit that to support Julia's ambition and I was literally knocking on doors now if that was in Sydney and I knew no one and was talking about a brand that I'd worked for in another city that no one had ever heard of I I imagine that would have been really tough Um, but I picked up my first client within within weeks and so, and there was, I was actually working with, so the, the two founders of, um, of Guzman and Gomez, um, Rob Hazen and Steve Marks, prior to Guzman and Gomez, they had a whole bunch of different businesses, one of which was a fashion distribution business. And they had distributed Sass and Bide in the US. So Rob and I had sort of set up this consulting business. And so he had basically rented the office and I had... I, so I, I guess I, I had a level of of infrastructure around me, but we didn't have any clients. We'd gone and bought this brand, Imitation of Christ, together, and that was that was just a money sink. So the idea was that I would consult to subsidise, uh, you know, Imitation of Christ. And as it turned out, the consulting business ended up being the much better business. <laughs> and so culturally, just to, to answer your question, I think they're incredibly open to if you've got the right energy and you are displaying a, a level of ambition and you've got some degree of domain expertise, it doesn't matter what school you went to. It doesn't matter what your surname is. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You will get a fair hearing by a whole bunch of people who will want to support you. The other thing I found is that I met a really good friend there, but I, I met him at a, at a dinner that, uh, that Julia, um, it was really for Julia. It was a welcome to Newsweek. And it was the great and good of kind of New York journalism. There was a Pulitzer Prize winner there. There was a senator there. It was, it was a very, very serious dinner. I was seated next to a guy called Mark Robertson, who's now one of my dearest friends and godfather of my daughter. Uh, he, amongst many other things, was a long-term executive producer to Diane Sawyer. And at that stage, Diane was the, uh, the, the host of Good Morning America and the highest paid female journalist in the world. And so he, he was just a lot of fun. We were having a great conversation. And he got up at 9.30 and said, look, I need to, I need to go. I'm going to the, the filming of, um, of Saturday Night Live. I was like, oh, wow, that would be a lot more fun than this dinner. <laughs> and he's like, do you want to come? And I was like, oh, I'll check. And so I spoke to Julian. She's like, yeah, go on, have fun. We're in the front row, the filming of Saturday Night Live, and it was uh, Keith Urban was on that night um, amongst uh, Forrest Whitaker and anyway, a bunch of people. We then went out drinking, had a fantastic night. Now – that was the first time I ever met him. Within a week he was saying, who do you need to know? You know, so who in my black book would be helpful to you? And I'm like, that's a pretty good black book. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. There's a few people in there. And he actually mentioned at that point in time he wanted to introduce me to Tom. 
And so Tom Brown had this amazing brand. Um, you know, he'd won Anna Wintour was, you know, all over him. They'd, he'd won the CFDA uh, Fashion Designer of the Year Award. I mean, he had, he'd had his collection hanging in the Whitney. Like he was, he was a big deal from a creative perspective, but commercially he was in a world of pain. And the, the, the business was uh, hemorrhaging money and was, was really struggling. He had some really bad advice and he had some really bad people around him. Uh, not, not bad, morally bad, just not very smart commercially. And so he had got himself into a position that a lot of young designers do. And we see it in the music industry, right? You see it in the film industry. You see it in the fashion industry where someone is creatively brilliant and is genuinely doing something. They've got something to say and by God, the world needs to hear about mm-hmm. it. But then the structure that's being created around them is just not tenable. It just it's it's drag. It's holding them down and dragging them back. And um, I didn't meet Tom at that stage because he didn't want to meet me because he had no idea who Sasson Bai was. <laughs> so I then went off and did other things for other brands. And as I sort of I guess built a little bit of a reputation in terms of what I was able to do with those other brands, one of the the brands, Travada, John Whitledge, the founder of that brand, was close to Anna because he'd won. Uh, the CFDA Designer of the Year Award as well. And he spoke to Anna and said, look, this guy's the real deal. You may ne- never heard Assassin by, but he, he seems to have, you know, where, cre- where creativity and commerciality cross over, he's helped us find that bullseye. So we were really creative, but we weren't commercial. And sometimes I do the opposite. Sometimes brands are too commercial and they just sort of lost the love in the brand. And, but, but that's what I love finding. Like where's that magic at that, that, that intersection? Long story short, um, uh, I, I met Tom. Same thing with Tom. Tom did not ask me where I went to school. He didn't want to talk about Sassenbai because he'd never heard of it. He wasn't interested in what I'd studied at university. You know, I sort of went in there going, well, I've done a lot of grant. I did a bit of M&A law and I did this and that. He's like, yeah, yeah I, I, tell me what we should do here. Just like I've been told that you're reasonably bright, like you've got some interesting ideas on, on how, to, how to help brands out like me. So the fact that, that, that Americans culturally – are incredibly open to new ideas. I mean, just, just in a way that's very difficult to describe, actually. Like, I'm not even doing it justice. If we had an hour, I still wouldn't do it, <laughs> do it, do it justice. They are hungry for new ideas. You need to experience ideas. it kind of to you understand. Do. And I was on, I've only been there for a couple of weeks. And obviously, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, I couldn't explain it either. It's, it's a feeling, right? Like, it's, it's yeah. Anyway, continue. That, that sort of um, cultural innate curiosity. What's new? What, what can we do this different? What's better than what we've got now? Who's got some ideas to look at this differently? How might we approach this in a different way? Those are the conversations you have in the pub, you know, <laughs> different to the conversations I have in the pub here. So there's this energy around new ideas. Now, we often dumb that down. I think it's the influence of Wall Street. We dumb it down to well, it's all about the money. You know, everyone's trying to make a buck. Everyone's trying to come up with a new idea to make money. In my experience, that's not true. In my experience, what they're looking for is the new idea. We'll work out how to make money later. But give us something that – what is an elegant solution to a, to a problem? Or can we create a problem that we then develop an elegant solution for? Or is there a way of doing something that we're currently doing demonstrably better and everything between those two extremes? So we've got an existing business that could be better. We've got a whole new idea that no one's ever heard of. And everything in between, the curiosity to explore new ideas and not just explore them academically. I mean fund them. Like come and go, yeah, I'll throw 50 grand at that. You know, and, and you'd have those conversations all the time. So that sounds interesting. You know, let's, let's roll the dice. You know, how soon could you be up and going? You don't, or at least when I was growing up, that was not the sort of conversation you'd have in Sydney. And I grew up in Brisbane. You certainly don't have that conversation in Brisbane. But even in Sydney or Melbourne, I think that startup culture is a relatively recent addition to the Australian you know, lexicon, the Australian culture. So I think I love that about America. I think the sheer depth of talent you know, when I went to Urban Outfitters, so after restructuring and, 
and recapitalizing Tom Brown and we sold a, a chunk of it to a group of Japanese investors and they asked me to stay on but I was going to be shuttling back and forth to Tokyo and my, my, my marriage at the time was not, not where I wanted it to, to be and ultimately we, we split up but the, I made the decision to stay in the US so I was out hunting for a new role. And so I interviewed with uh, Ralph Lauren. I actually met Ralph, which is a funny, other funny story. I'll, I'll tell you later, another time maybe. Uh, interview with Jay Crew and interview with Urban Outfitters because those three businesses at the time were doing really interesting things with e-com at a level of funding. That they had a level of funding to explore technologies that the smaller businesses just didn't have. And it was very early on in AI. We weren't even calling it AI at that point. They were calling it kind of predictive, you know, predictive yeah. algorithmics and but they were exploring and experimenting with technology that I really wanted to get my hands on. So I wanted to go to a larger business. But you know, even when I, when I interviewed with, with uh, and ultimately joined Urban Outfitters, Glenn Sank, who was the CEO at the time at Urban, and um, you know, along with Mark McGinnis, the best retail executive I've, I've ever met, uh, the way he approached me as well, like, it was just very different to the interviewing that you do here in Australia. And it reflected that curiosity. The interview wasn't about what have you done in the past and did you take it from A to B and, you know, what sort of, what was your organisational design like? And it was all about, talk to me about what you're passionate about. You know, talk to me about the kind of people you work with. What's your, what's your style of leadership? You know, what kind of management team works best with you? How do you see digital and retail coming together? Like it was more around ideas and exploring ideas and trying to work out whether I was creative enough. So the, the, the commercial, you know, can he read a PL? Does he understand financial forecasting? You know, is he, is he au fait with organizational design, recruitment, retention? Like that was almost a bit of a given. It was more like, is he creative enough to add value here? And so I think that curiosity and the way they approach everything, businesses, people, new ideas, different business models is so inspiring and energizing. And, that, and you got a taste of that obviously when you were there. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a really beautiful thing and we can be critical from afar and other things with America that we'd all like, of course there are, but culturally the way they take care and foster and nourish creativity, there's a reason that they're the soft superpower that, yeah, we all know they're a hard superpower, but they're also a cultural superpower and there's a, there's a good reason for that. You you mentioned something as well that I, I had on my list to ask you about now, exactly what you were just speaking about. So you're in retail before, you know, e-commerce really started to boom long before Shopify existed and it was yeah. there for anyone to start a business. Yeah. Talk to me about being in retail while all that started to happen and 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 you were there on, on, on like on the front lines as this transition and integration happened between online and offline. Talk to me a little bit about that kind of the process, but what was the mentality in the, in the, in the industry at the time? Was it like, this is going to be a fad? It's not going to be yeah. a thing. Was there resistance? Was it yeah. all in? It, it was it's it was pretty wild, you know. I, I think I was very much an early adopter. I mean, when, when I was so the, the work I did in London, going back pre-fashion, I was with a recruitment business uh, that was that had just gone public and it was on an acquisition spree, and it was buying HR technology businesses and it was buying staffing businesses and all over the place. And I started pitching my CEO there, you know, two years after joining, on the fact that we should have an e-com re- recruitment business. So we should have the high touch, you know, the full service, but we should have this sort of platform to match. So that was I mean, that was. 96. So I guess I was very excited about the potential of the technology early on. By the time we got through the dot-com bust, it was clear that the there were there were models that that were just more euphoric than in any way practical. And there was an awful lot of money wasted. So by the time re- most retail brands were looking at e-com, there was, there was a level of awareness that it wasn't going to necessarily take over the world in every category, but it was going to be incredibly important 
And early on, the, the most progressive leaders in the space were starting to think about data. So, you know, when someone works into a store and they transact with us, these days, you know, it's all about loyalty because you can gather data from loyalty. Back then, loyalty programs were pretty thin on the ground. So someone will walk in, they could be your best customer, they could be wor- your worst customer. They could be someone who comes in five times a year, 20 times a year, once a year, never come before. Who knows, right? So very early on, there was this, this awareness that the data set you could get from e-com could support decision-making retail, but it was still thought of as an adjunct. Mm-hmm. So oh, well, we could use this to learn a bit more about the customer. And I mean, of course, not everyone, no, who's going to want to buy online because it takes weeks to get it and you want to try it on, right? Like who'd buy clothes or shoes? Or <laughs> so there was all that debate going on. But the more progressive thinkers in the space were seeing it at worst as a really interesting adjunct in terms of business insights and intelligence to get to a level of granularity around data around the customer and how he or she behaved. But it pretty soon became obvious that it was also an incredibly rich opportunity to engage with the customer in a different way. What what year was it? Sorry to cut you off. What, yeah. what year was it that you remember that it, it went from this small thing? What year did it approach like, okay, this is going to rival in-store retail? Like when was it like oh, this wow. is now becoming a massive channel? Well, so that – I mean that was much later. Like, you know, so I think, you know, even when I met with um, – so J. Crew had a good e-com business when I was interviewing with them and that was sort of 2009 or so. And But Rouse wasn't great. Mm. Um And the reason I chose Urban is that Glenn Sank was all in. He was like, you know, we want this to be 20, 30% of the business. And at the time, you know, even the really big brands were at six, seven, eight. Yeah, so that was pretty um, ambitious. Very ambitious. And um, and I joined, it was the midst of the US Great Recession. I mean, it was was brutal. And the business I joined was turning over 180 million at the time. So I I took leadership of that that business unit. And he, on my first day, said, I want you to go out at 300 run rate within 12 months. I'm like, it's a recession. <laughs> Have you not noticed what's going on? So he was incredibly bullish because he saw the way that that we could we could work with the data set that we had, but increasingly improve that that data set through e-com. And particularly he was he was the first guy who I spoke to that believed that it wasn't called omnichannel then. But he believed that ultimately we would have an omni-channel universe where it was all about the customer, where he or she wanted to interact with us and it should be seamless. So we should have the same data set available to us when a customer walks in the store as the data set we have when they're transacting online. There should be no delineation from a customer experience. But also he was definitely the first guy. I mean, what, what, one of the things that we did in there and he was the first person I really kind of sold on this idea is we should align everything to the one customer experience. And what I mean by that is we're incenting our store staff with bonuses. So in the US, everyone's paid nothing, but they're very high incentives. And we had staff, you know, sales women in anthropology, because I say women because they, they all, almost all were women at the time. We had one saleswoman in New York who was earning 200,000 a year US at the time in the midst of the recession on commission. So it, they were very generously rewarded that also meant that they wanted to do the sale. So if you came in looking for a red dress and they only had a blue dress in store, by God, they're going to sell you a blue <laughs> dress, right? So we started talking about, well, what if we, and this is obviously early on and it's, it's much more advanced now, but we would have them selling via iPads in store so it's such that the whole kind of, that the whole assortment was available everywhere, but then we'd incentivize them. So they'd be paid a bonus as if they made it in store. And going a step further, let's draw a line around the store. If the store is, you know, Dead Jennings, the founder of Dais, used to talk about the Dais location as a temple of enthusiasm for the brand. And I, I just don't think there's a better description for great retailers, a temple of enthusiasm for the brand. So we drew a circle around every store and we said, if a sale is made online, 
in that circle, we're attributing part of it to the store because the store is the Temple of Dizem from Brown in that area. So the bonus pool for the store was supplemented by whatever happens in e-com around the store. All of a sudden, the girls were really happy to sell you online. So when you went in, it was no longer about this is Trying what we've got. The, yes. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. We, we're going to get you what you want. However, we get it to you. And we had, you know, same day shipping when it wasn't called same day shipping because we were just using local couriers. And, you know, so we would do whatever it took to delight the customer at the time. So I think Glenn was incredibly advanced. So when you ask sort of when did it start to shift, you had leaders like Glenn thinking that way. But then when I came back to Australia, uh, and I, the only reason I left the US is because ultimately my, my first marriage did, did split and my ex-wife wanted to be back here in Sydney and I didn't want to be away from the kids. So I came back to Sydney. And I started doing the rounds of the, the major retailers to, to start consulting. And I knew I wanted to consult and I wasn't looking for a job. And I knew that the knowledge that I had from my time in the States would be of value. The skepticism I encountered was extraordinary. And I'm not going to mention names for obvious reasons. I don't want to embarrass anyone because a lot of these people have since converted. <laughs> you know, they've <laughs> since come around. In fact, I think they all have. But at the time... There were major retailers saying, it's just not that big a deal. Like, it's another way of advertising. And, you know, yes, we, of course, we'll pick up a few sales. And I think they'll use it for research. But why wouldn't they come into store? So Australia was a little bit behind. Yep. We've caught up a lot. So I think it, when you try to put a date on it to answer your question directly, I think the more progressive thinkers were probably there really early in the 2000s. Mm. But then I think coming back to Australia in 2010, 20, 2011, end of 2010, there were big names who were in the AFR on a weekly basis who thought it was all a bit of a flash in the pan. Wow, 2010 as well. <laughs> it's not that long ago. Oh, really? So, and, and, but, you know, in, in fairness, I think at the time they were looking at their numbers and they were reflecting the reality of their business, not necessarily thinking ahead. And you know we talked before about that distinction between strategic thinking and tactical thinking, and you need both. So they were deep in the tactics, deep in the weeds of business as usual, and they are doing a really good job but they weren't necessarily thinking about what's over the horizon, what's coming. Can I be disrupted by an Amazon or a Kogan? That, that wasn't – it's not part of the conversation. Very, so yeah. maintaining the two for leaders, is, is it's tough. I mean, I have empathy. With, with your time in the States while the um, massive recession was on, what did you look at? Obviously, you were, you were involved in, in, in a range of businesses and, and, and had, I'm sure, relationships with loads of different business operators, CEOs, founders in, in, in the States at the time the businesses that survived and actually thrived in that time versus the businesses that ultimately had to shut down, liquidate, all that sort of stuff. What do you think was the main things that the ones did right versus the ones that did wrong in that time? So I think, you know, outside of essential services, so we're talking discretionary where you really, you don't yeah. have to make this purchase, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 So if we're talking discretionary and we're cutting out the luxury brands for the uber rich, cause they're fine, right? Like they're, they're not impacted in the way that, that the rest of us are impacted. So I think there was, there was the upper strata of luxury brands, uh, the luxury brands that we all know to be luxury brands, but also that you would associate maybe not as household names, but sell into that market. Most of them did, did reasonably okay. Uh, and some of them actually grew. If we're talking about your sort of um, what, what you might call mass market through to kind of mass aspirational to contempt, you know, that sort of range, those that, that prospered through that time, with Tom Brown being one of them, Urban Outfitters being another, never lost sight of what they were trying to do from a creative perspective. So commercially, the inclination when things get tough is to cut back, right? The, the, the inclination is immediately to batten down the hatches. Fear takes over. Creativity, well, creativity cannot operate. When, when you, you're in a fear state, you are not tapping into higher order creativity, right? It's like, what do I need to survive? 
And I think an awful lot of executives and leaders get into that mindset of this is existential. We need to batten down the hatches and we need to cut wherever we can. Now, if you think about it from a a consumer perspective, they're coming to – the reason we engage with any brand is the promise of a better life. Now, that version of a better life is different for Apple than it is to Porsche, than it is to Rolex, than it is to Urban Outfitters, but you're buying into the brand because it is offering you entree into what you think you would like your life to be. When you imagine your life, that's the kind of world you want to live in. And there's real magic around that, and there's an enormous amount of creative energy required to maintain that illusion because that's what it is. Like buying a Rolex doesn't make you successful, (laughs) right? But there is an awful lot of energy on the brand's part that goes into maintaining that illusion. It's a beautiful illusion, by the way. Like, like I think it's a it's a lovely part of life that we can interact with brands that way. I'm not cynical about it at all, but let's call it for what it is. There's there's a dream that you're being sold and you are an active participant in pursuing that dream. It makes you feel good. When you cut back on creativity, uh, whether that's brand or marketing or collaborations or partnerships, events, whatever it is, because they're the, they're the easy thing to cut. You know, it's, it's that you can put a line through that and it's pretty easy. The magic starts to come off. And you see it, a really simple example would be what we've seen in department stores when they cut staff on, on the floor. Now, department stores have an older customer. They want to talk to someone. So if your solution to department stores uh, having a blown out cost base is to reduce the people that their customers want to speak to, that's not going to be a great long-term move. So I think just pausing and reflecting from here on, what is the core value proposition here? And in a, lot, in a lot of discretionary consumer brands, the core value proposition is an intangible. It's the way that brand makes me feel. And there's a lot of energy around the storytelling, storytelling to maintain that emotional connection and that emotional promise. So I think more than anything else, the brands that were able to, yes, prudently cut back, yes, sweat their assets a little bit harder, yes, pull out a couple more points gross margin here and there and be a little bit more clever in terms of OPEX, maybe cut back on some CapEx, but be really careful about identifying, for every brand it's different, what is the core value proposition that gave us permission to play in this market in the first place? Do not cut that. That is the last thing that we cut. Everything can go before we cut that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I, I love that. I love that answer. Now I want to take it just a slight little, little pivot on, on that point. I'm sure you learn a lot about business going through that, that period in the U S and particularly the recession, but did you learn anything about life or human, human behavior in general going through that? <laughs> Definitely. Um, it was, I, I think first of all, it was, it was brutal. I, I had multiple friends lose, lose their jobs. Um, a, a lot of Aussies who are over there and I was working with in New York. Uh, I was living in New York when it hit. And it continued through until when I was living in Philly. Um, I had uh, a lot of friends have to come back to Australia. People I was working with who got fired and lost their homes. So, so I think what we thought of as a as a you know what do we call it down here the GFC. I kept talking to friends because uh, I was living over there. I'm like this recession is brutal. It's like it's really bad. I'm like and they're like growth's down to two percent. I'm like it's <laughs> minus eight here. <laughs> there is no comparison. So I think first of all I learned a lot about um, just just how tough, and this is left about human nature and this is just more about the circumstances of, of, of the universe, I guess. Um, you know, the Buddhists say that everything changes. Like that's the only, that if you could summarize Buddhism in, in two words, it's everything changes. And people get very attached to whatever they have right now. Whatever right now looks like, very easy to get attached to it. Circumstances are going to change that for better or for worse, but the one thing you can be sure of, it's going to change. And I learned a lot about, now talking about human nature, how people responded to that. Exactly the same circumstances, I saw people go, this is my opportunity to start a new business. 
this is my opportunity to pursue that dream that I've always had to do my own thing. And I've been attached to this thing because I thought I'd be loyal to them and they'd be loyal to me and now I'm out of a job. So fuck them, I'm going to go start a business. I saw people respond like that. I saw people who go into deep, dark depression, you know, and really take some time to, to come out of it and interview and interview and interview because they thought they had to get back into a corporate role. And that soul-sucking process of interviewing and having someone who doesn't know you decide whether you're worthy or not on the basis of a one-hour chat, not good if you're already depressed, you know, pretty, pretty difficult. So I think, and I'm not judging either. I'm just saying that it was interesting to see how different people responded and the resilience, the resilience kicks in at some point. Like, like the, the people I was talking about who really had a difficult time, I'm talking about, thinking about one friend in particular had a very difficult time. The resilience did kick in eventually, but God, he had a tough couple of years. And for the other individuals who saw this as an opportunity, maybe not immediately, maybe after a, a few nights licking their wounds and, you know, spending too much money on red wine, but at a certain point in time when, you know what, this is, this is not my fault. This is not a failure. I'm not going to attach negative emotional energy to the fact that I got cut. I had nothing to do with the subprime banking crisis. I just happen to be out of work now. So what am I going to do with my time? I'm going to do that course on digital marketing. I'm going to go and start a remote MBA. I'm going to roll the dice and become a consultant or launch a new business or start a brand with that girl who's got that amazing idea that I met three months ago. So I think, I think you do – adversity is an incredible teacher – and adversity reveals character and it really shows you your opportunities for growth. And like you said, it, it, it's an opportunity for, you know, for, 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 for moving in the, in the direction that, you know, maybe you wanted to protect the, the status quo. You wanted to play, you know, whether it be to loyalty or comfort. When everything's taken away from you and you get to start from zero, you can rebuild in whatever image you want, right? 100%. There's that, that you know, we all at some point need to tear off a mask or two. Yes. I was talking to a friend about it and I was saying it's, it's like breaking up with yourself. You know, it's that girlfriend you had at high school who was awesome and she was so much fun and she was, she was super cool and, but she was probably sleeping with your friend and it's just time to break up. It doesn't matter how good it was at one moment in time. It's time to move on because it's toxic. And I think we have to do that with ourselves sometimes and go, okay, what got me here and who I was is, is, was fantastic and I honour that and he was, a, he was a fun guy. But now I've got a new set of objectives and I need to kind of peel it off. The other thing that can happen is someone rips it off for you. And those sort of circumstances, that sort of extreme adversity really forces change. And that is not to in any way, because I'm really conscious actually of how that could sound um, really judgmental of those who didn't respond perfectly in the minute and really um, you're underestimating how incredibly traumatic that can be. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm just saying that there is an opportunity. We all maintain agency. In fact, the only thing we have complete agency over is how we respond to circumstances. So whether we get there immediately or it takes a while, there's no, there's no judgment in that. But, but if you know eventually you're going to have to get off the canvas, if you know eventually you're going to have to start making new decisions associated with new people, surrounding yourself with new opportunities, why not start sooner? The people that did react rather quickly versus the people that took a little bit of time, have you been able to, upon reflection, pinpoint a quality or a trait that was the difference between the people that picked themselves up in a, in, in a couple of weeks versus a couple of years? Yeah, a sense of higher purpose. Like it, it, unquestionably. So downstream from that, you've got resilience and you've got resourcefulness and you've got all those other qualities that are incredibly important. But I can say with absolute certainty and without exception, those who had a sense of higher purpose for their own life, this is tactical. This is not strategic. I've got that same higher purpose. Now I just need to make a new decision. I need to pivot tactically. 
Absent that higher purpose, you're letting other people define you. If you don't have your own higher purpose, then you get defined by your job title. You get defined by the size of your house. You get defined by what because you're choosing to define yourself and you're allowing others to define you by things that actually don't really matter. But when you've got a burning sense of higher purpose, and that could but does not have to be spiritual, you know, it could but does not have to be, you know, uh, something that benefits others. I'm not judging. Like, you know, wh- whatever it is for you. But if you've got a crystal clear sense of what your higher purpose is, what you want your legacy to be, then it's and it's pretty hard to hold you back. No, exactly. Now, you've had a lot of roles, high-pressure roles across, you know, across the world. What I want to know, I can't imagine what it can, what it, what it is to – obviously, I've led seven- and eight-figure businesses, but I've never led anything close to a nine-figure business. That pressure and stress – and pressure and stress rather that comes with that. How have you managed that over the years? Have you had any moments where you're under so much pressure that you really did have to have a little bit more of a focus on mental health to get yourself through those hard moments? Definitely. Yeah. I think, I think it would be um, completely dishonest of me to suggest that I've handled it brilliantly. <laughs> There's been extended periods where I handled it really badly. Surely it's impossible for anyone in business for, you know, decades to have a spotless record. And No, I uh, think – I honestly think – so I, so first of all, I think self-medication, which had to come to an end, and I don't think I was ever a raging alcoholic or anything, but I definitely used a few glasses of wine at the end crutch, of the day yeah. as a crutch, no question. And I actually stopped drinking completely for a year just to break that habit, which is very helpful. Um, I think uh, I've used psychologists, um, both performance psychologists, what you would call, uh, I guess, more of an executive type coach psychologist, but also relationship psychologists. Um, and, I, you know, it's funny. There's Thank God there's less shame in that now. But at the time I debated whether I was, you know, do I really need one? You know, I debated, debated that for months. <laughs> thank God, you know, and that, that's been pivotal pivotal for me because I'd always been interested in spirituality and psychology. And in fact, where, what is the, what is the intersection of spiritual tradition, modern psychology and kind of quantum physics like that, that to me is, is fascinating. And the fact that they're all sort of proving each other right is, is, is kind of hilarious and and wonderful to to me. So I'd always been interested, but I've been self-taught. And of course you can't really, you know, you can't be a therapist to yourself. So I thought I could figure it out by, by, by teaching myself. And I went to a Zen school for a little while in, in London. I did a whole bunch of my own reading. I've got a, my wife is astounded by how many books I have about one topic, which is Zen. She's like, is there more to learn about Zen? Like, <laughs> there is so much more to learn. I don't know. I don't know anything about it yet. I have no idea. But you can't, you cannot help yourself with any kind of objectivity to state the obvious. You, you remain subjective. It doesn't matter how, you know, how many exercises of writing it all out and trying to get distance from it. So I think... Booze and various recreational drugs, which are really not helpful. <laughs> Big tip, listeners, not <laughs> ultimately not, not helpful. But we all go there. Well, most of us go there at some point in time. Professional help, trying to sort through, trying to get back to that higher purpose when it was buried under a whole bunch of failure, fear of failure, shame, fear of shame, um, financial stress, blah, 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 blah. I'm responsible for this organisation. I'm responsible for these people. They've all taken mortgages and it's going to go tits up. You know, that kind of pressure, like it's not good for me, but I'm, I'm, I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want to disappoint my wife and all these people who, who believed in me and joined this business. And, you know, that's awful. So you definitely want some help getting through that. But probably the most consistent tool that I think is one that we can all do every single day without spending a penny is exercise. And um, 
beyond exercise nutrition and beyond those two, some kind of mindfulness practice, which again may or may not be spiritual in nature. But I think that if nothing else, you are putting yourself in the position where you're managing your physiology better than you would otherwise. You're flooding yourself with good hormones. You're getting out whatever aggro or you know anger you might be feeling at the time. You're also by yourself. So you unless you're plugged into it, it always makes me when I'm in the gym or I'm running or whatever and everyone's got their headphones, I'm like, just take them out. Just be just just be at peace for a little while. And really when you're under a heavy squat bar or you're doing hill sprints or you're 30 Ks into a marathon, which I did for a little while, marathons, never do those again. <laughs> at that point in time when it's just you, there is, you know, talk about mindfulness. Because if, if you're under that squat bar and you're close to your one rep max and you may not have spotters with you, but even if you do, they're not going to be able to arm curl 160 kilos. You've got to be in that moment. So same thing with meditation, same thing if you, if you enjoy surf, whatever it is, like you find some space for you where you're getting all the physiological and biological benefits of exercise, which are well known, but you're getting the mental ones too. Now, I want to ask you about transformational change. Obviously, it's a big, it's a big part of what you, you've done for multiple businesses. When you're approaching a, a large organization or an organization that maybe had a really great run and is starting to taper off or potentially go backwards, what, what are the key principles you, when you're going into consult or help a business you know, navigate that transformational change? What's the key principles? Like, What are you looking to achieve when you go into a business and do that? I think, uh, yeah, first of all, the, the, um, I should stress that the only businesses I want to work with and the only leaders I want to work with are those who are interested in transformational change. So that's now a really simple way for me to choose between potential projects. And a transformation could be I've got an idea and I want to start a business. It could be I've got a business and it's going through you know, it's circling the drain. Like how do we, how do we get out of this spin? It could be that the brand needs to be completely repositioned. It could be we want to go to a new market, whatever. So transformation means we all know what it means, a fundamental shift from where we are today to a better state. So I, I love that process. And I didn't set out at 23 to end up specializing in that, but my curiosity is always to find really challenging opportunities and work with really interesting creative people. And those two combined tend to lead to transformational projects. So how do you approach it? I think, you know, th the first thing that I always do is try to get to know the leader. And that, and that often takes a little bit of time. It, there, there can be a really quick fit, you know, we can become fast friends and really connect, but sometimes it can take a, a, a little bit of time. And when I say I get to know them, I'm not talking about a whiteboard with, you know, this is the business and this is the revenue and this is what we're doing. These are our markets, key customers, blah, blah, blah. I mean, what, what are you all about? So what, how did you get here? I mean, basically the questions you're asking me now. So really getting to know what brought them to where they are today what it is that is driving them to want to do more. So personally, not, not the business yet. We're just, what is it that's driving you? Because the business and the changes we have to make to the business will become fairly self-evident. But the way the leader is going to approach whatever those shifts need to be, if I don't understand that, if I don't understand what's driving them or what's going to keep them going, maintain their resilience, maintain their passion, maintain their energy, have them turn up every day ready to rock and roll, then whatever changes we need to make to the business, you know, minor or major, I will not have the confidence that I need and the leader won't have the confidence they need in themselves that they can carry it through. 
Because regardless of how good a business idea may be, if it's not in alignment with the true wants and, and ambitions and the true driving force of a person, I've seen it even myself so many times. It just doesn't. It just doesn't you see it all the out. time. You see it all the time. You know, I, I, I don't go to that many parties anymore. Uh, thank God. But when I used to, <laughs> when I used to be very social, um, you get pitched ideas all the time. Everyone's got a great idea. Um, half the time they're telling you, well, that idea out there that's making tough, that was my idea and I had it years ago. <laughs> but, but, but often it's also they do have a genuinely good idea and it, it's, it's intriguing. They've thought it through. They've done some research. There's actually some substance to what they're proposing. But it's not going to go anywhere because it's not actually aligned with whatever they've decided is their highest purpose. And it could be as simple as, well, I've got a big mortgage and the kids are in private school and this is going to mean I can't take a salary for 12 months and, you know, it's just too hard. Like that sort of excuse, which I, again, I have empathy for. That's me. <laughs> I've got three kids in private school. I understand what that's like. I, so I'm not judging it, but it could be that externalization. So I'm not acknowledging, hey, it's just me. I'm saying it's because, no, the, the school fees are really high or the mortgage is tough or whatever it is. And all that is is, you know, that's a way of externalising whatever it is that you have going on inside that's preventing you from doing it. Some are more self-aware. as like, I just don't know if I could stick with it. Like, like, you know, it fires me up and I think you can make money, but is it going to really change the world? So depending on what their motivation set is, if they see their legacy as making the world a better place and this is an app that's going to drive people to do their laundry with a dry cleaner, you know, or whatever it is, then it's hard to get that excited about it. The money's not enough. Um, I think it is for a few people. Like there's, there's definitely some people I've met along the way who would do anything if it was profitable, you know. Um, most people not though. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a surprise for a lot of people. And I guess like once you've had a little bit of experience with business or made a little bit of money, it's really funny how fast you work out how little you care about money once you've been able to tick that first box. And I know for me as well, like that's why I've got a podcast. That's why I've, I've, I've started consulting and mentoring with Econ because just having, even though like the, the, the business I still own, Happy Skin Co, like we've done great and it, it does help people in a way, obviously helps people feel good about themselves and access, you know, beauty, beauty, um, practices that they may not have been other, otherwise able to just if I just sit at the end of the day if I was just to sit and stare at the same screen every day working on the same thing selling essentially you know a product that maybe isn't aligned with my greater passion I could not solely do that no. day in day out no 100 percent no and it is a shock I think to, to a it lot of people it was a shock and I, I had to go through a bit of ego death and, and, and accepting certain things about myself and what I wanted to do and I used to think oh I'd love to be a CEO and I realized, no fucking way. It's just not me. It's just yeah. not my strength. Yeah. I couldn't operate a business with hundreds of employees, setting structures. And it's just, I, may, maybe I could figure it out, but I don't want to. And if I don't want to work on things and problems that I don't really enjoy, I've got my own set of strengths and, and yeah. ways I want to operate in life and business. And realizing that took me, you know, <laughs> it, it was a bit of a, a shocking experience to go through and realize, crap, like all the things that I thought I would do, it, it isn't truly in alignment with me once once I got there. Yeah. It's actually awesome though, isn't it? Yeah, no. It's, <laughs> like, it's all, it's, it, the, I've got more clarity on, you know, the way I'm going to move and make yeah. moves moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a beautiful thing and it's it's something that that, that we all should do mm. but many of us don't and, and you know, you hear all these stories all the time whether it's – we're talking about the – the Great Recession before and people getting fired and that that's what it took for them to pursue their dream. You know, for other people it's like a cancer diagnosis or it's the breakup of a marriage or it's the you know, death of a parent or some horrendously traumatic thing that gives them permission to think differently about the next phase of their life. You don't need that. You don't have to wait for something awful to happen. You can do it right now. Yeah. That, but how? Like that's, that's the thing. You can. 
it's some people just need this one trigger. Like th- this conversation that you're listening to could be the trigger. I like, hope so. Like, Maybe it, you never know. You never know. Like it just yeah. if it's getting that you know trigger of, of of taking massive action on that. Like if you're not satisfied with your life, you genuinely have the power to wake up and change that tomorrow. So the taking massive action thing is a great point. So we we're talking before about kind of the awareness, acceptance, action. The point is it's massive action and you've got to do the work. So there's that, there's that reality, like there's a, a great book, uh, Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act. Have you, have you? So Rick's like one of the most successful music producers of all time. And what he's tried to distill in The Creative Act is the, the environment, the atmosphere and the process that he tries to create in the studio when he's working with, with different artists. And it's, but it's much broader. As you're reading it, you realise this isn't just about, this is not about music, this is about life, right? This is, so, so I think, and it's, what's really interesting is that there's the first third of the book is all this beautiful, just open the mind to the universe and set yourself in a position to get these ideas and make sure that you're creating space. For and then it gets to the work and he's like, this is, you can't ignore this bit. (laughs) We can all sit around and dream. I think most of us should do more of it actually. But then once you've got to the point that you've identified an idea, so you've planted a bunch of seeds, you've seen how they mature, you've identified the one you want to go with, then it's a grind and you just have to go. So you don't, I think some people, some people think it's all about the grind. Some people just want to focus on the lovely creative bit. It's the ability to do both and not just sequentially sometimes, often in business you've got to do both at the same time. Because you've got a product out there that is now in the growth phase, that's in the grind phase, but because you're in a consumer business, you're always developing new products. So you're also in the creative phase, and so managing that, managing your energy around that, your mindset around that is is so so important. And so many people get stuck in that like uh, motive seeking motivation loop. Yeah, you know, seek motivation. Okay, plan, dream, get to the point of taking action. Ah, uh, fear of failure. Yeah, uh, too hard. Whatever. Let me let me figure out something else. Seek yes. motivation. Okay, I'm really excited. But then, yeah, that's 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 something I see a lot, particularly with with uh, the next generation coming through. Um, so it's interesting. Now, ask, I want to ask you a few last questions before we we'll wrap this up. We'll start to wind up now. One question I want to ask from from your perspective. It's it's not not a question I'd be able to ask anyone else. Brands, like I said. I want to know, like, what key principles or what should a, a seven-figure year per brand focus on to go to eight figures per year mm-hmm. and then an eight-figure per year brand to go to a nine-figure per year brand obviously is a massive leap. But what are the key principles or, or things you'd be focusing on to take brands, those, those big leaps forward? So, oh, goodness, that's a, that's a really super broad one. So I'm going to try to be really succinct because um, in the interest of time. So I think from, uh, from seven to eight and eight to nine. So from seven to eight, so, you know, assuming that you, yeah, you're in obviously single digit millions. First of all, anyone who gets to a million, uh, well, one to five, depending on the industry, but let's call it those low single digit millions. That's a phenomenal achievement. Like that, that is, that is absolutely something to be celebrated. However, <laughs> it's, it's really just starting. So the transition from those early single digit millions to double digit millions is when you transition typically from a, a kind of rough and ready garage type skunk works type startup mm-hmm. to something approaching an organization. And that transition is top to bottom. So it, we touched earlier on in terms of how your role as founder shifts, assuming that you're going to take the mantle of CEO or MD or whatever you're going to call yourself, assuming you are going to transition from the ideator and the energizer and the kind of, you know, energizer bunny, basically, you're going to transition from that to a leader coach type type role that you would typically need at you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 million. You've got a true organization. There's a big shift required for you. The organization itself goes from being a whole bunch of generalists doing a whole bunch of stuff 
all at once. As, as companies get bigger, roles become more narrow and deeper, right, as we all know. So you're starting to look for different people. And sometimes that's really hard because not just in the people you may have worked with early on, but even in yourself, you recognize, actually, I'm not that great at this job. So as it becomes more narrow and deeper, you really have to assess. And that doesn't mean there's not someone, there's not a place for all those, those early team members, but it does mean that maybe the place that they thought it was going to be or that you thought it was going to be is not right. And there's some really sometimes challenging discussions to be had around that because you're starting to map out an organizational design that you really want, you have to, you have to be objective about. So you're thinking about, to take my business to this next stage, what does it need to look like? So I'm clear on, I'm assuming here you've got a clear strategic vision. So you've worked, you've worked hard with your team or with someone like me or, you know, some other consultancy, you've worked with someone to really clearly define the vision and you've got a strategy built around that. So I'm focusing on the tactics and the operations to execute on that strategy. Organizational design aces in their places. So you have a series of functions across the organization the, the individual to fill that role is not the individual that happens to be sitting on your left or right or the guy that you went to school with, the girl you, the girl you met at uni. It's the absolute best person you can find for that role. So being, being very clear-eyed, and it's not being ruthless, it's actually the kindest thing you can do is to put people in a position where they're set up to succeed. And the people that supported you on the way, there'll be other roles for them and you'll put them in a role where they're set up to succeed. So that, that process is actually underrated and often rushed. So I think if you can give that a little bit of time and attention, I think your financial modeling, you know, really getting crystal clear on, is this something we can self-fund? To the extent that we need money, how much do we think we need? To the extent that we need money, at what val? Are there certain proof points that we could achieve to improve that valuation? Could we self-fund some of those? So really, really dry-eyed around that as well. Um, you have to have the cap. You've got to have the strategy. You can have the organizational design, you can have the right people in the seats, and then you've got to have the capital strategy to be able to support your ability to agile. We were talking earlier about remaining agile, test and learn. You've got to fund all that. So unless you've got all the answers perfectly dialed in on day one, you're going to get some things right and some things wrong. So you've got to have the organizational resilience and flexibility and the capital strength and flexibility to be able to execute against that. And because the resources, time, people and money available to you same resources that are available to most other people, right? Like most people can raise dough these days if it's a halfway decent idea. Most people can attract – you're charismatic. Most founders are. You will attract some good people. And the time – we've got the same amount of time each day. So it's how do we most efficiently deploy those resources with a degree of resilience built in, you know, some that book Anti-Fragile, like it's a great book to read if you're getting into startups. We want to move beyond resilience to anti-fragility where the business actually benefits from adversity, but that's a whole other discussion. So you've got some resilience built in and then you've got the cap structure to execute over time. So that's a super, super short summary, yep. but it all starts with the big proviso that you're crystal clear on what you're trying to achieve from a vision. The, the business's organizational vision for the future is clear and you've got a strategy to support that. Mm -hmm. And then we're, then we're down and dirty on organizational tactics, capital, yeah. how we go about it. And then is it the same principles as that differ going from an eight figure to a nine figure to your brand? It's typically, it, you know, in some ways it gets easier and in some ways it's, it's harder. Like it's the, to state the obvious in percentage terms, growth gets harder because you, you know, <laughs> it's hard to do 30 X when you're doing hundred million, you know? So, lovely, so <laughs> it would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, it, it's this, it's the same, but different. I mean, there's, uh, how I put it, everything I just mentioned is dialed up a couple of levels. So roles become even more narrow and even 
more deeper. You will be able to attract better people, but those people are demanding. They will only follow a leader that they believe in. And what are they believing in? They're believing in some combination of the clarity of vision, the confidence in the strategy, and your personal capacity to execute against that as, as leader. Most people at that level in a business that's turning over, you know, let's call it 50 to 100 million, that they want to get into a business turning over 500 to a billion, they want someone they can learn from. They want someone who they trust, who behaves consistently, who is really – so there's a – You're very different, yeah. It's the personal qualities that you bring to that. <coughs> the, the wild-eyed startup guy, mm-hmm. you know, that had all the ideas and had the energy and was just magnetic and a pure charisma, that's not someone you want generally – there's exceptions, but generally that's not someone that most tenured executives with an eye on LinkedIn and their resume development are going to necessarily trust yes. as good custodians of their career and future. So so it's, it's the same, but it's dialed up. Your leadership has to become even more evolved, even more enlightened, you know, more mature in every sense, spiritually, mentally, commercially, you have to grow the people that you are attracting will be better at their jobs. They will be more demanding in terms of what they expect from you and the kind of potential they expect from the organisation. Hopefully you will evolve into more managing them and they manage the business. That's a beautiful place to get to as a leader. When you're clear that your leadership is about leading a team that ultimately leads the business, it's a, very, it's a big step up and it's a great step up. But it's a difficult transition for some on both sides of that table for the leader and for their direct reports. And then in terms of other things that get somewhat easier, I mean, you know, when you're that size, you're going to attract typically better partners. Um, you're going to be urban outfitters, you know, like the, the Oracles and the Microsofts and the Silicon Valley startups would come to Philly to pitch to us. So you, you're starting to attract ideas, intellectual capital, human capital, that you don't necessarily always get at the smaller smaller stage. Well, you might get, but it's, you know, one in three or one in five. I mean, the, my PA at Urban Outfitters is now the CEO of a company in, uh, in Philly. She had an MBA from an Ivy League school and she joined, she joined Urban in any role that was offered to her. So the talent pool as the business becomes bigger and becomes more attractive is phenomenal. So in some ways it gets easier. But then we spoke to growth. At that point in time, you're on everyone's radar. Every competitor wants to take you down. So it's war. And, and you are, you are, you're, playing in, you're playing in the A-League now, son. Like everyone takes it up a, a level and you just got to be ready for that. And ready for, what I mean by ready for that? In terms of the team, in terms of the structure, the partners, the cap, all of it. you just got to be ready for a more – it's just more competitive. You know, you've gone from playing footy in high school or, you know, you're, you're – She's the captain of the swim team in high school and, you know, she's trying out for, for regionals and going to state. There's just – there's always another level mm-hmm. and everything becomes more intense. So you grow because you have to. Well, you grow or die sort of thing. But that's harsh, but you know what I mean. You either grow or you don't. Um, and there's something beautiful about the pressure cooker of that environment. But you have to be ready for it personally and you have to think really carefully around who do I need to be surrounded by in every sense, employees from a board perspective, from a funding perspective, partners, uh, people like me, who do I need around me to be able to support my growth and development as a leader because no business outgrows its leader. And if I want to go from seven to eight to nine, man, that's on me. Exactly. And just to underpin the whole conversation, it all comes back down. If you're starting day one, obviously talking about a nine-figure business is 
years, probably decades down the line if it's ever going to happen. But it all comes back to that personal and professional development journey you go on. It starts today and it never stops. Yeah, and it sucks. only – I imagine it's exponential as you get, as you get further and further along. You, your, as your eyes open to opportunity and, and just – as I've leveled up the people around me and as I've seen the way bigger businesses operate, I've always gone back and I sit at home and I just think, fuck – like you just you just realize that there's so much more out there, but to get to that, where, where I want to be, all the people I'm looking up to, and then how I'm living and operating my businesses, and that gap, that's that's my roadmap. That's yep. what I've got to improve on. So yep. it's exciting. It's aspirational to hear these sorts of stories. Now, for you, what's next? What 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 sort of businesses are you are you, are you working with? Are you attracted to? Obviously, got a got a clear picture on the type of entrepreneurs that you want to partner with that are open to transformational change. But what's next for you? Where's your new plan and vision for the next, next five years? Say? So uh, thank you. That's a, that, that's a question I'd love to answer. I, I think for me, it's about transitioning into doing this full time. Mm-hmm. So to date, I've had a mixture of tenured CEO roles, interim CEO roles, some board roles, and a bit of consulting and coaching. What really in the last only six months, I've decided I want to focus on this consulting and coaching. So strategy consulting and leadership coach. That's all I want to do. Um, I love it. Um, I really feel like it's a, a, a great alignment with with what I enjoy most, and hopefully making a difference to some people's lives. You know, in, in, you know, in hopefully profound and positive way. So so that that is my focus uh, in terms of the kind of business I'm working with. I mean, right now today I've got clients that are just starting. Uh, in fact, I've got one client who's in a corporate role and is just using me as a sounding board to bounce around ideas. So it's kind of pre-startup, but then right the way through to um, well, the largest enterprise I'm working with right now today on a retained base is about a $200 million business. So there's, it's not a huge business, but it's a, it's a very different business. But like we were talking about before, the methods are many, the principles are few. What we're talking about is the same stuff. It's the same stuff right across. And are the, the details different? Of course they are. Is there nuance? Of course there is. But in terms of those core principles that creates and sustains success and most importantly fulfillment, you know, all the success in the world doesn't mean much if we're not feeling fulfilled. So if we can get those two, it's a pretty special place. And I love, I love watching that. And that should be a byproduct of, of me doing my job properly. So the, the, the business is in the best possible position it can be. Leadership has a really clear defined strategy, really aligned team. We're very agile in terms of how we're refining our tactics. But also people are loving life. You know, they're in a good spot. And being, being around people who are genuinely feeling, you know, creatively, commercially, spiritually, emotionally fulfilled with what they're doing, not every day, but more days than, than not, that's a, that's a great place to be. I, I love so much that it's not just financially. So many people, when you when you start working with like higher level consultants like yourself, it's all about how can we improve the bottom line and the top line and that's it. But like you said, there's so much more that go into building that in terms of yourself with your team, with the people around you. So I love that. I um I I, I um there's a million other questions I could have asked you today and, and maybe maybe we'll do a round two one day. But what would your what would your piece of advice be to anyone that's in that early stages looking for an idea or has an idea? So what would you be focusing on for those that are Finally decided today's the day I'm going to, I'm going to set a plan. I'm going to work towards building the life that I really, I'm going to be fulfilled by. I might be earning a decent amount of money working a corporate job I don't like. What's your advice to people in that stage? And then let everyone know for the people that are interested in finding out, at least finding out more information about you and what you do, where they can find you and, and, and hit you up if they, yeah, if, if they're in a position to do so. Fantastic. So I think in terms of someone who is at the point where they have that burning fire of, of ambition, 
but they're just not quite sure where to channel it. There's a lot of energy there, but there's a it's a shifting target in terms of where they go. I, I think start start with the end in mind. Total cliche, hundred percent true. So starting with really defining what it is you want. And I really encourage people, we touched on this briefly. It's not about, the, don't describe the business, don't describe the brand, don't describe the product or the service. Describe the world, your world, three or five years hence. And start with start with five because it's easy to wrap your head around. In reality, if you go hard at it, it's going to happen in more like two or three years. But start with what your life is going to look like in five years' time. And don't think about the how, don't think about the what or the who then go thinking about the why. So these are the things I, I imagine my life would be. This is the kind of work I'll be doing, this kind of people working with, this is the sort of work travel schedule I'd have, this is the kind of environment I'd create, this is how people would feel when they interacted with my business, this is how I'd feel when I shared with my friends and family what I did, all that stuff. Then really work through it as a Tony Robbins would actually, then start ascribing an emotional value to that. So what would it mean if I got it? What would it mean if I didn't get it? Really drive that, like drive that needle in, like make it hurt. The thought of not having that has to feel sufficiently painful for you to really go at it. Then go through that whole process of sorting those. Like, you know, dreams are, dreams are great, but we want goals because the goal is the starting point to building out a strategy. So we start putting timelines against those. And then if you still so okay, I've got an idea of the life and I've got an idea of, you know, I want to achieve that in one year, three years, five years, and these are people I like to work with, but I still don't know what it is. Like I don't, I don't fundamentally know what I'm going to be selling here. Then I'd really encourage people to – there are a bunch, of, a bunch of great books out there and there's a bunch of great practices where you can just kind of channel into the universe a little bit. Now I know I'm sounding a little woo-woo. But there is something magical about the creative process that no one's been able to explain. Neuroscience can't explain. Biology can't explain. There is something that happens when you put yourself in the place to receive. So you're clear on what you want. You know what your higher purpose is in life, what my legacy is going to be. I don't know how I'm going to get it yet, but I know what I want my life to be about. Then go and read Rick Rubin, you know, or go and go and read. There's so many great books. I mean, that. You know, there's, yeah, read a bit of Viktor Frankl, read a bit of Tony Robbins. Read, like there's so many great writers out there, but uh, I think Rick Rubin's a, a, a good, as good a place as any to start to put yourself in a position to ideate and to start exploring creative ideas. And man, they will come to you out of the blue at the weirdest times when you're following this practice, you're creating space for yourself and you're genuinely in a position that's, that you're ready to receive. I've seen it happen in my own life. It's happened to me and the people that I've worked with that have completely transformed their business and totally transformed their life. And, you know, I mean, Tom's just a perfect example. He's now considered one of the most influential fashion designers of all time. And when I met him, he was, he was so concerned he was going to have to go back and get a job at Ralph Lauren as a mid-level designer again. So how has he been able to go from, from there to where he is today? I mean, that, that being open to receiving – that incredible creativity that's available to all of us, that that idea that you're searching for will come. And if that sounds super woo-woo and weird, just trust me. Just give it a go and <laughs> you might be surprised. Once you're clear on the kind of burning – your burning ambition is being translated into a higher purpose. You're clear on what you want your life to be. You've now got an idea after exploring several that you feel really strongly about. Then there's the process that we discussed before. Like get clear on the strategy – get clear on who you need around you and getting them really aligned with this objective and then create those that, that tool set of tactics, remaining very agile and very open-minded on a test and learn process and just go. I mean, you've got to start. You have to start. 
thousand percent. And where, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, probably the best place would be the Together website. Uh, so that's our, our consulting website, which is togetherthestudio.com. I'll actually be launching a new one, which will be focused more on this because Together is the work that I do with my wife, who's an art director. So we do a mix of creative and commercial, a lot of what we've been talking about today. But I'm going to set up one that will be more purely performance coaching, leadership coaching oriented, which will be Sparks and Partners. Very but that will be up soon. I'll, have, I'll be keeping an eye out for that as well myself. So Josh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences all your amazing lessons and perspectives that you've that you've built over the years and other law student um i didn't make it all the way through but i realized pretty quickly it wasn't for me either so <laughs> we're gonna cut off air about wh- how you made that decision but i'm also <laughs> interested in that so yeah thanks so much best of luck with everything you do i'm sure to be success like everything else you've touched over the last few years and decades so thanks again my pleasure thank Cheers. you so much for having me appreciate it All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.